0: Long years ago,
1: we made a trip with destiny, and now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge.
0: Hello, and welcome to India Colonized, a weekly podcast where we explore South Asia's colonial past and its continuing legacy in the contemporary world. Today, on our podcast, we have with us an award-winning author, Mr. Sudeep Chakravarti, to talk about his book, Plasi: The Battle That Changed the Course of Indian History. Plasi by Sudeep Chakravarti is an absolutely engaging and entertaining book, written with details of intrigues, vanity, and unriddling the playing of economics and politics of the time. He has wonderfully delineated the cast of characters from the prejudice and perceived conceptions and has dusted the layered narrative settled over the centuries that have passed since the incident. Shudeep Chakravarti is an award-winning author of best-selling works of narrative non-fiction, including *Classy: the battle that changed the course of Indian history, The Bengalis, a portrait of community, and an extensively published columnist He has over three decades of experience in media. Sudeep has worked with major global and Indian media organizations, including the Asian Wall Street Journal, where he began his career and has held leadership positions at Sunday, the India Today group, NHT Media. Here is my conversation with Mr. Sudeep Chakravarti on his book, Plassi. Hey Mr. Chakravarti, we are glad to have you on a podcast, India Colonized. So before we get down to discussing your absolutely entertaining book, we would love to discuss and hear about yourself, not just your career, but also a bit about your intellectual journey, who are the sort of thinkers who influenced you, the books that have influenced you throughout this journey. Well, I'm not sure about my intellectual journey. I wouldn't aspire to such uh, such a
1: refined description, but a journey for sure. Uh, thank you for asking the question. It is. Um, I've always been interested in history for as long as I can recall. Even as a child, I would be instinctively drawn towards uh, aspects of history, uh, Indian history, Asian history, world history, and I have the advantage uh, because uh, even though growing up, uh, I primarily read in Bengali, which is my mother tongue, uh, English is a very close I I would call it a mother tongue in South Africa. But many, I I mean, even Bengali, there were many, many books of history available or instances of history available to me. And my parents made sure that uh, they gifted me books primarily. So I grew up with, uh, and I I requested uh, books that were related to history or historical people, people in history, events in history. And I was very, very curious. So uh, I mean it's and it goes back a long way, and, um, and whether it's medieval Indian history, ancient Indian history, modern Indian history, uh, whether it's the Vietnam War or Second World War, uh, European history, the Renaissance, Japanese, Chinese, Russian history, you name it, as it was always very very curious. So um, and and that sort of translated very quickly into my um, studies at. School. Uh, I was fortunate to have several teachers who were excellent teachers of history. So they would make history come alive for us. So if you were discussing the Battle of Halvi Ghat, even that teacher uh, would, you know, Vijay Mathu, for instance, uh, one of the teachers at Mayo College in Mishmaya, uh, would make history come alive for us in class. And we, I had to credit not just my own interest or my parents, but also my teachers of history. Uh, people who taught me history when I was growing up for my abiding interest and my continuing interest and my increasing love for history. So, I mean, all credit to my teachers. And that, and he's just one example that I'm giving you. There are others. Uh, I read history at university, I was at St. Stephen's College, I read history there. I had excellent lecturers and professors, and uh, I have no hesitation mentioning some people who really made things good for me. There uh, There's Professor Upandar Singh who, who taught me ancient Indian history. You know, there's Sumit Goha who taught me uh, modern European history. Uh, there, were, there was Tanika Sankar who taught us Far Eastern history. Uh, there's Devedi there, who taught us uh, ancient Indian history in a very colorful way. There was Mohammed Amin Saab who was an uh, absolutely delightful black and for medieval Indian history. There was Dave Baker who taught us European history, you know, these are institutions in their own way now, and I'm just so fortunate that along with my generation of people who were at university, and there were, of course, excellent professors and lecturers across India as well, but I can only speak of what I experienced. Uh, I, I must impress that even though some of my grades may not have reflected uh, my teacher's interest in uh, how we uh, how we were taught and how much attention we paid, but I absolutely am uh, bela- no problem in admitting that what I learned at school and college and what I learned from my teachers helped in a great way to, to uh, take me ahead. After my uh, studies in history, I became a journalist, um, a business journalist, and then a political and a foreign affairs journalist, all kinds of things, an editor. But I was always very, very keen on history. And I was always drawn to any article that I've written, any article that I've edited. For me, the background, the root of it, the root cause of events and people, why people behave in a particular way, have always for me been rooted in history. There is no getting away from history, whatever I do. Uh, subsequent to my career in journalism, when I took actively to writing books, uh i've written novels i've written uh, narrative nonfiction, which has been about uh north you said in northeast india it's getting the, the the maoist rebel areas of maoist rebellion and in, in uh in business and human rights in anthropology uh, i've written a biography of the bengali people um and uh, the reason why we are meeting uh now uh, over the of of Plassey, uh among other things They're all very, very rooted in history. Uh, every even my fiction is deep. I mean, I research a lot for my fiction, and I have to get the context right. Even if the the some of the protagonists are make-believable situations are make-believe, they're very clearly and deeply set in a historical context, whether it's the emergency or whether it's uh, uh, the anti riots right? so or whether it's the Babi Masjid uh, time of the Babi Masjid movement and the demolition of the Babi Masjid and, and the effect thereafter on India. These are all very, very rooted in history. Um so, I mean whatever I do uh, is rooted in history and in fact uh I am engaged in of history or politics in history and I'm actually editing as we speak a series uh in modern Indian history or um a poll called uh, LiveHistoryIndia.com, which is uh, for the past three years um, three and a half years has been making a lot of uh, waves, and I'm very glad to be editing the Making of Model India uh, series for them uh, for the next uh, I mean it, it will run right after August 15, 2022 the and Anniversary of India's Independence and so everything I do uh, Omar is that you know somehow or the other it ends up uh, being very rooted in history, and I absolutely
0: love it what can I say Wow, um so what drove you to history and drove you to write the book on classy like what are the questions that you set out to answer during this project it's a i was I've always been struck by how much of
1: Indian history is written with a Political purpose or has been written with a political purpose. It began uh, during the time, I mean, in, in, in history, always, in, even in the ancient and medieval times where history has been written, it's usually been a hagiographic history. And then you didn't have history. You had essentially you storytellers, who courtiers uh, attached to a particular king or emperor who would write glories about their king or emperor. And uh, yeah, and, and there were other histories from travelers from, say, China or elsewhere, or Italy, or whatever. But they were always, I, those in some ways are more honest histories, to my mind. Uh, but, and there, thereafter, when, say, the uh, medieval India went into great medieval India, and it went into uh, sort of the colonial India, colonial, the British colonial period, uh, and specifically, the history began to be written with, uh, with, from the British perspective. Uh, and... They were valorized the British, and everything was a very Livingstonian, and everything was from deepest, darkest India, uh, like it was deepest, darkest Africa. you know, So, how do you do, Mr. Livingston, and how do all these natives, and so on and so forth? So, it's always been uh, that uh, sort of history writing. Equally, when uh, subcontinental nationalism began to grow, or Indian nationalism began to grow. Uh, people began to question these histories uh, to, to their credit. Uh, for instance, Dada Bhai who is one of the first people, in fact, the person to talk about the drain of wealth uh, about 100 years before, uh, or more, 150 years uh, before say, Shashi Tharoor made the uh, drain of wealth famous, that is, Oxford debate. Uh, it was Dada Bhai who actually, he brought the data to the Indian people and he as an MP, elected MP in the British Parliament, the first colored person to do so, he threw facts at as, as the, the, the British politicians and he basically rewrote the narrative of history and he birthed nationalism. But having said that, there was also other streams of nationalism. Then there was a need to uh, write history from the Indian nationalist perspective, then very quickly from the Hindu nationalist perspective, equally quickly from the Islamic nationalist perspective. And that time there was no Pakistan, the idea of Pakistan I'm talking about. But there was a need, there was a need to tell the story of the Muslim people of India, Uh, which began with uh, in in 1906, because there was a Mohammedan education society, for instance. They were buried under the idea. Of Of uh, emancipating and empowering the Muslims of India, and part of that uh, taking it, so it was not just the tilaks of India who were writing histories. There were also the uh, you know, the people from other communities, if you will, religious and ethnic and, and caste communities uh, who were writing or rewriting their own histories. But there are problems with these kinds of things because sometimes people get overzealous in kind of history. They tend to overcorrect sometimes, and that leads to problems. And that is a problem that we're facing very acutely in present day India, for instance, where history has been rewritten even as it happens. There is a dangerous writing and rewriting of history. There is a whitewashing of history. There's a saffron washing of history. There is a whatever you want to call it washing of history. And this is very, very dangerous. All the more reason why. Uh, people who can, who have the time, the inclination, the resources, the ability, the interest primarily, uh, to and the opportunity to write history in the matter, history is ideally supposed to be written, which is basically you look at as many available sources you don't put blinkers on, you keep an open mind you keep an open heart you keep an you keep your eyes open, you keep your ears open. For me, history is living history. You look around you, you research as much as you can, then you put it all together, look at aspects that need readdressing, that need rewriting, that need to be looked at, and then you present to your public, your readership, your viewership, your audience. And Classy is one, one such instance, uh, which uh, which uh, I, I thought that was very... Uh, uh, it was not addressed enough, primarily as an event of its own importance. Uh, number one, number two, a lot of the histories of Plassey have been written by British historians who have who continue to valorise, who continue to valorize, valorize the British effort, and who continue to uh, to to write to approach Plassey from from the perspective of this grand British enterprise when there were many other lads, uh uh, for instance, uh, Robert Clive was this close to losing Passy, and how many British people will will acknowledge that? For instance, okay, and he won it. But the point is that history then there is no joy of history. History is also about the dynamics. It's also about the various layers of history. So how many people acknowledge that? Uh, how many people are willing to acknowledge uh, that? Uh, you know, from the Indian nationalist perspective, that or, or the Hindu nationalist perspective, that there is a writing of the addressing of Plassey uh, of as, oh, okay, you know, you know the big bad Yavanas, the Muslim, was finally got rid of by the British, glory be. But how many, uh, how many are willing to acknowledge that there were, it was a geopolitical and geoeconomic enterprise, that it was not necessarily a religious enterprise. It was not at all an enterprise of religion It was an enterprise of convenience, peoples of the British, of uh, the Sirazola of the British East India Company, the French East India Company, the Zamindars of Bengal, the Mughal Empire, the break, the, the, the disappearing, the fast disappearing Mughal Empire, the fast uh, 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 cracking Mughal Empire, you know, whatever you want to, how, however you want to describe it, or the uh, or the, the leaders of Mushtabat, who, the nobility, who wanted their uh, interests to be saved, but as they went against the then of Bengal, you know, these are all for interests and expediency or a power or to protect their interests, to protect their cheaper villages, to protect their business interests, political interests, self interest. Self-interest. There was no nationalistic enterprise in that, uh, that thing, really. Uh, in fact, uh, again, you know. Uh, you know, Surat Abdullah, for instance, sometimes in Bangladesh in particular, is, or is portrayed as, uh, you know, last Bengali Nawab. I mean, he wasn't Bengali, for so heaven's sake. He was just the last free Nawab of Bengal. You know, so history, uh, you know, there is always a need to position ancient uh, in history or people in history with, uh, with an interest in mind. And all the more reason for those who can and history without an agenda, except for presenting history in the manner that history should be presented. The perspectives, all the Latin, all the sources, all the les, all the sub the backstories, the personalities, stories, the developments, so on and so forth. And, I mean, I'm sure we've said this in the course of this conversation, but, I mean, let me end this reply here by saying, uh, history is how you present it. And it is the job, the duty of a historian and a storyteller uh, or a narrator or a central the, the mantle he chosen to wear uh in 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 my in my time now that it is incumbent on us our absolutely sacred duty to question, interrogate sort of these hoary ideas of history, the notions of history, and present history in the uncluttered. Informative
0: manner, the layered manner that it ought to be presented. You know, as someone who has extensively worked on the Battle of Plassey, how would you briefly explain it to someone who has never heard of the battle, I and mean, how significant and vital is this battle in Indian history, and especially for the colonial history of the subcontinent, and why? Well, it's, uh, it's it's it's
1: quite. Uh, simple, actually, if you were to pay attention to it, and when I am saying you, I mean we, us, all of us. Uh, it is ex- it is extremely significant uh, in subcontinental history and Indian history, Pakistani history, Bangladeshi history, history and Nepali history, the history of the subcontinent, history of Asia, and therefore the history of the world in many ways. Uh, for instance, uh, I am very fond of saying this: is that we could be having this conversation in French. With the French were were very very powerful players in India in and the Indian subcontinent at that particular point of time, and they were big players in Asia uh, at that point of time, and they were also very very significant players in Europe as a direct competitor in England, to Great Britain, and in Americas, in in Africa, in the Caribbean. So uh, I mean, there was this sort of a global dynamic that happening, and the, the people don't realize how significant. A role the French played in the politics of 18th century Bengal in the politics of 18th century India. Uh, it, it was a, it was very it was a very close and so we could be speaking in Marathi because at that point of time when in the time of the fading uh the the single most potent subcontinental force was the Maratha Confederacy, and they were rampant because. Uh, Northern India, they were all across Western India. Uh, they had absolute control of Central India. they had gone to the south. they would moved east to the extent that they, uh, the, in that strategy, was in the heart of Bengal when the Battle of Plassey took place on 23rd of June 1757. Uh, when his grandfather, who he succeeded, Nawab the, uh, the Alibad Rihan, was spent ten years of his reign battling the raids into Bengal to the extent that he had to sue for peace in 1751 and see not just the chops or the tax that the Marathas were trying to pressure uh, Bengal Subah of the Mughal Empire in Spain, but also see the territory of Orissa to the Marathas. So you have Ali Nabi Khan, who was called the Nawab of, you know, the Subah of Bengal or the Nawab of Bengal, Bihar and Orissa, but he was actually the Nawab of Bengal and Tyre, uh, for all practical purposes after seventeen fifty one so the Marathas were a very, very strong force, and Robert actually reached out to the Marathas to ally uh, with the Marathas against Rala. So I'm just giving you some ideas as to how significant that battle is that you know the, the English came through, the British East Indies Company came through and won the battle in alliance with. Uh, uh, several political people in opposition to siraj Dalla in the court of Bengal in Mushagabad at that particular point of time. The names that you hear of are uh his key generals meet Jafar who became Nawab after Sir was deposed. Uh you have uh, you have names shown about like the bankers, uh, the Jagat Seth at that particular point of time the bankers to the world, the big title who I said to have bankrolled uh, the British uh, into the Battle of Lasya, but all we did was essentially tell the British and the British in Company, East India Company, that uh, you know they were protecting their businesses. Uh, they they got the decision that uh, Siraj was not as secure for their businesses as somebody else might be. So they popped up Mijakar as a candidate along with. The, the British East India Company. So this is all, you know, so the battle was fought because what happened is that Bengal at that particular point in time and for many centuries prior and for many years subsequent to that it was the single richest province in the Indian Empire, not just of the British but also of the Mughals. And uh, and so it was a plum posting. It was really the plum, the jewel of not just the British Empire, it was also the Jivala of the Mughal Empire at its zenith as well as when it was trading. So uh, it, it was a very, very competitive province. Uh, Bengal was an important uh, province for trade uh, to European entities who came in. Bengal, unlike any other part of India, was connected, and Bengal I'm talking about is not just the West Bengal state of West Bengal in India that you have, but it, it included present-day Bangladesh as well. It included uh, present-day Bihar as well. It included present-day Orissa as well. That was the subha of Bengal. It included parts of Assam, present-day Assam as well. That's how the subha of Bengal went. And it was this huge, deltaic place deeply connected with rivers. Commerce was extremely easy to con- conduct. Uh, you, you could come in from the Bay of Bengal, come up river and through the Sundarbans and uh, get to present day Calcutta, uh, go upriver to all the I mean, settlements that the British had, the French had, the, the, the Dutch had, the, the Danes had, the Portuguese had, and, uh, you, 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 and trade would be seamless. And you could go upriver. There was no Faraka barrage those days. So you could go upriver, and you could go up to Patna, to Munger, to to Varanasi, to you know, uh, to to Saranpur wherever you want it and connect with the Yamuna and go up to Delhi. I mean, imagine the networking that Bengal provided you with its granary, with its jute, with its uh with its uh peter, which is very, very important uh produce uh, product of Bengal, which is important not just for preservation of uh foodstuff, but also very, very important an in ingredient for the manufacture of gunpowder. Which is an extremely important part, a uh, factor. Bengal fabrics were once well famous, which is one of the reasons that drew people to Bengal in the first and to Murshidabad, among other places, or to Dhaka. So it was a huge hub of of, uh, of Asian trade. It became a huge hub of Asian trade as well. So it was an important thing to, to fight over, and the uh, the it essentially grew out of a trade dispute. Between the uh, British East, East Company, India Company and the Nawabs of Bengal. And it wasn't just Siraj Dola uh, who uh, ran into uh, disputes with, or the other way around, with the British East India Company. Uh, the, the British East India Company had been even fought with them. I mean, they'd been fighting and skirmishing with the Mughal Empire way before they even set foot in Bengal, uh, because that's how the British did business. I mean, they, they threatened Jahangir the Emperor Jahangir uh, with, with naval blocked his Arabian Sea. You know, they would interdict uh, royal uh, Mughal shipping in order to leverage pressure at court in order to gain trading concessions. This the British did business. And there's nothing new about it. Uh, it's just that Sirajit dollar and Bengal and the British and their competition, the uh, competitors, the French, and at the point you had... Uh, uh, you know the competition for the riches of Bengal, of the economy of Bengal, the trading potential of Bengal, and therefore the political control of Bengal. You see, it's all interconnected. it's not it's not one any one thing. We have to understand just how interconnected things are in history. That is the, that's when you get to the root cause of history. Uh, then you have a situation where you have. The French fighting wars in Europe, the effect of which carried over into so we were fighting in southern India in the 1740s in the, in the Carnatic, what is called the Carnatic. They we were fighting for St. George in Chennai, in present-day Chennai, and they were playing politics. And the same politics as they brought up to Bengal 10, 15 years later, the British and French were playing each other off by using. You know, uh, I mean, they were offering each other services with the local rulers of the south. So it was all a multiplicity of things that came together, and uh, and that also came in with uh, the, the the feeling in uh, in the Bengal court uh, when this 23 year old boy Siraj ud uh, takes over as a Nawab of Bengal, you know, in in April in 1766. Uh, I mean, look at it. I mean, people are postgraduate students in, when they're 22, 23. And this boy is uh, Nawab of Bengal. Uh, and he immediately thrown into this geopolitical and geopolitical economic, which is, uh which is also the lair in Bushidabad, which we don't pay attention to. Well, uh, his aunt, uh, a lady called uh, is Ali Wazir Khan's, uh, one of Ali Bazi's daughters. Uh, uh, and Siraj's mother's uh, mother, Amina Begum's older sister, you know, Ghasirim, who wanted her son, who is actually a biological brother, who Amina Begum and Suraj's father given in as a you know in, as, a, as an adoption to their sister and her uh, and her husband who wanted Ikram to become known. Ikram. Um, Right uh, at a young age, and uh, uh, Gasseti Begum never liked Sirajan, you know, was dead set against Siraj. And to the extent that uh, he, she fought before the British, were even in the picture, before Robert Clyde came to Calcutta with the British in their company, to try and get rid of Siraj uh, by using other people who were available to her, like Siraj's cousin, Shokar Jam, who was in you know, a uh, in Bihar at that time. In fact, before the Battle of Plassey, you had Shokarjan moving towards Boshedagar from Purnia to effect the coup of Battle Gawla and then backing off when Suraj got wind of it and, fought and, and, and pushed back, Shokarjan backed off. So you, and then you had Mir uh, who was a meat Bhaksh of the Bengal army and one of the, you know, the old power Old uh, forces of uh, the Bengal court at that point in time who uh, didn't get along with Siraj because Siraj stripped him off his post when he became Nawab. So you had a lot of these, you know, these jealousies and these uh, resentments Bengal court as well. And when uh, the British East India Company came together to secure their economic and political position in Bengal, and they, and also to offset, to keep away the French influence in Bengal. The Dutch influence in Bengal, right? And the Mughal influence in Bengal, and the Maratha influence in Bengal, they see, I mean, it, just, it was just expedient for them to find reach out and find allies. Uh, to be sure, the French were looking for similar allies to secure their interests. The British basically just got a better deal uh, for themselves, and uh, they managed to win the Battle of Plassey. That's how important the battle is. And it's after the Battle of Plassey in 23rd of June, uh, on 23rd of June 1757, that you have in short order, that you have the British taking over effectively the uh, the the administrative, the political control of Bengal, immediately, the richest province still, yes, the Mughal Empire, still technically the Mughal Empire, even then the Mughal Empire continued in till 1857, technically. So... They took over effectively the political and administrative control, and therefore the economic control of the richest sub, uh, province in the subcontinent uh, because, of her, because of the control. The next few Nawabs, Mir Jafar, Mir Kasim, Mir Jafar's uh, son-in-law, and then back to Mir Jafar, uh, you know, they were just appointing Nawabs for a fee and getting concessions, trading concessions to trade freely in Bengal, invoking... Uh, what uh, they'd, they'd received from the Mughal Empire, the, uh, Empire Faruqsiyar in 1717, to trade duty free in Bengal, which was misused, uh, which also uh, upset Siraj Abdullah, which also was one of the reasons what led to the tension between the company and the Nawab. So there are many reasons. We have to keep all these things in mind. And then, uh, uh, this is, it's only because they were enabled with political and economic power in Bengal that they were able to get the resources, the money, enrich the company and themselves to actually take on the forces of Milka uh, and the emperor at that time and take them on in 1764 in the Battle of Baqsar and defeat these forces. And after that, uh, again, uh, through the city of Allahabad, uh, the, the, the Diwani of the province of Subra. So in... Imagine the chain of the of the battle of branches set upon that you you have this company, this corporate enterprise with, with offices in London on Leadenhall Street, uh, run in India, operated in India by a bunch of uh, 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 absolutely uh, what, clever, but also foolhardy to a great extent, very high-risk-taking individuals, and basically effect of corporate coup. In a province of Bengal, in the empire of England, and and then take over that province between 1757 and 1764. In years, they have the province, and then by 18, you know, the, you know, the, the early 19th century, they kicked the Marathas out of Delhi, taken over, control the Mughal Empire, and by 1857, they had India. I mean, just look at. What this one battle which the British were this close to losing. And Robert Clive, who led the forces against again, from the Nawab of Bengal, Siraj ud till two days before, till the day before the battle, till the night before the battle, till the morning of the battle, Robert Clive, the lion of Bengal, Clive of India, and heaven sent general, as it is described in the British Parliament, was an absolute nervous. Wreck and showed up as the opium addict he was, who took a theme, took opium, to calm his nerves because he was a nervous wreck. That's also the story of the Battle of Plastic. Well,
0: what really captivated me is the gripping narrative and the colors in which you have beautifully and colorfully painted um, the cast of characters involved in the, world the war, especially of Flies and Sarabi Bola. So, tell us a bit about these figures and um, how the perception of these individuals has changed over ages or rather how it has become to suffer a kind of monotonous narrative. Well, I'll give you
1: an example. I mean, because you have to look, when you look at a person, you have to look at, um, when you look at a particular character, you have to also look at impulses that wrote the character. And who are the people who wrote the history? which became dominant narratives about these characters, right? The minute you go beyond them, you open uh, a treasure chest, a treasure trove of information, which people simply haven't, many, many people, haven't simply bothered to look at. And for instance, the narrative about this Dala in this sort of absolute lumpen element who ran around molesting and raping women in Mushadabad and would drown people, uh, you know, drown both loads of people for entertainment has never been questioned. But there is no, no one source that talks about this, and a best and a source. And that has become the law. Now, uh, Ali D. Khan, uh, even in his worst moves, said, you have to look after your subjects. Now, would he, when he was growing up, even the Siddharth was like pet, uh, love the love of his life. Would he risk his kingdom, his survival, and the, the you know, the, the loyalty by letting this absolutely be, you know, like thug run riot across Mushadva, literally run right across Mushidva with no control. I'm not saying it was all you know black and white because no nobody questioning this. Nobody there is a myth about Saraj that uh you know, he was a fool and that he always fought with the British. You know, when you look at the fact is that he wasn't he made be impulsive, but he was no fool. Uh, we forget that in seventeen fifty-six he actually kicked the British out of Calcutta uh, because of a dispute. So the' army came and kicked the British out of Calcutta. In fact, the British is still accompanied Mukheria at a particular point time. Right? And it was only as a reaction to that that Robert Fly and Admiral Charles Watson came from Madras. To not to take back Calcutta necessarily, but to negotiate with Siraj in order to regain the concession they had lost to make peace with Siraj. That was the charter they had. And the other charter was to get rid of the French from there. That was the plan that they came to Calcutta with. So let's get real here. We uh, we look at... The, I mean, I am not looking at mythical history. I'm looking at, the, for instance, I look at documents. So when I'm making these statements, I'm looking at, East India Company documents, which tell me that the 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 East India Company, British East India Company council at Calcutta at that point in time, when Siraj was made Crown Prince, if you will, the heir apparent of Aliwazi Khan in seventeen fifty-three, fifty four, 54 he came down to Hooghly, which is I think there is the River, but but there's also a trading town called Hooghly. There is a Hooghly in the present day, which was a big trading town. And Siraj came down to Hooghly as the heir apparent of Aligarh Khan. And the British uh, went up to Hooghly from Calcutta and fated Siraj, gave Siraj gifts. I, I, can I read out to you a little bit from the, the book as to what kind of gifts uh, they gave? Just a, Let me see. If I can find it. Well, let me just, huh, let me find this <laughs> here. You know, this, this is the British East India Company, and this is uh, from company records, okay? British East India Company records, not Chakravarti and Company records. You know, the, in the accounts of presence to Siraj Abdallah and his officers on their visit to Hooghly, are entered 35 gold mohas, rupees 677. Uh, uh, worth rupees six million, a lot of money in those days. Ready money, from on rupees thousand five hundred. Wax candles of rupees. Very clinically kept records huh? in the company letters. After all, they were businessmen. This was a company, right? So they kept very good at- Wax candles worth eleven 1, hundred rupees. Clock worth eight hundred and eighty rupees. Looking glasses of two pairs worth five hundred and fifty rupees. Okay. These are seventeen fifties rupees not twenty twenty one rupees okay uh two marble slabs worth rupees two twenty uh one pair of pistols uh diamond ring worth nearly fifteen hundred rupees uh for alidi's wife and the and, and the women of the court uh, twenty six gold mowers the Fakirs who came who came with the with the entourage received uh, a lot of uh, money uh then the Foslar Garugi and in return, ud uh, Dola received a robe of honor and an elephant. And after that, ud Dola sent them a note of thanks, and Ali can't send the British, uh, a note of thanks, saying, you know, uh, and, and here, uh, and, and, and then, this is 1752, right, and then they write to uh, the, the company, writes to Britain saying that they've, they, at a small expense, they've got great favors. This is a business document that they've done, it's a business entity, right? Uh, nothing emotional about it, right? Uh, then, and then Roger Drake, who's the governor of Port William, receives a letter of thanks from Sadatib Dollah, okay? Uh, and this is a uh, uh, you know, he added to a parwana that uh, uh, Alivarji Khan gave, he adds, Siraj is adding this, you are a great, he's telling Roger Depp, who is the governor of uh, uh, Fort William, which is the, the, the base for the British Indians in their country, you are a great man, and that greatness becomes you, and the head of all merchants, is the standard of all merchants, it's in the flowery language of that time, but, you know, to, 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 to claim but the British and Siraj were fighting all the time, and Siraj is the sole reason why the British is. Let me not mince words, Homer. It is absolute, utter bullshit. There's no other way to describe it. It is myth-making, It is bullshit. It is absolute hogwash, It is rubbish. And these are the kind of objectives that I, that I leave this kind of history writing with. And when I read these histories and I read, the kind of, the kind of histories that the British have written and the kind of histories we've been taught in school and college, my blood begins to boil. Sorry, I'm getting a bit upset. Now, I'll give you another example about, uh, you know, about how close uh, thought a thing was. And you know, then we can move on to another part of the conversation. I, I told you earlier about how close you know, nervous Robert Clive was. Uh, before the Battle of Classes and valorized uh, for everything. Okay, so he entered into an which also included the Jagrath uh, state, with Jafar and other people in Bengal Court. that's fine. But note that this is something that he... This is, again, company records. This is not mythical records. This is a from company records that he writes... This is Robert clapping to Meef On the basis of an alliance with home he has assured the company directors in Calcutta and the London that it is worth taking this, this step, which is to go up from Calcutta to Hooghly to Chenada, defeating the French, and then to move slowly towards Murshidabad. In, and in the met at the field of Plassey, which is why the Battle of Plassey, or Palashi, or Palassey in India. So fly writing to Mijaf. Okay, a couple of days, a couple of days more than I am determined to risk anything on your account, though you will not exert yourself. I shall be on the other side of the river this evening. If you will join me at Plassey, I will march halfway to meet you. And the whole Nabob's army will know that I fight for you. Give me leave to call your mind how much your own glory and safety depends upon it. Be assured, if you do this, you will be the suba of these provinces. Cannot go, even this to assist us. I call God to witness that the fault is not mine. And I must desire your counsel, including a peace with the Nabob. And here, the tribe is talking about it's Sirajitwala. So he's telling Mirjapal that if you don't come with me, I'm going to make peace with the Nawab, and nobody will do the wiser. This is two days before the battle of Plassey. All right? And what has passed between us will never be known. What can I say more, that I'm as desirous of your success as, welfare as my own? This is a business deal taking place. A day later, and some people say the morning, there is a dispute about this, that it will send the night of uh, 22nd of June. Some say it will send 23rd of June, early in the morning. The battle began at 8 a.m. and this is sent hours before that. Clive is again writing to Jaffer, his biggest co-conspirator against Harajal Tala. And this is referred to by company sources, and this is referred to by Robert Orme, who is a military historian engaged by the company and a personal friend of Robert Clive's, by the way. And Clive again writes to me, Jafar whatever could be done by me, I have done. I can do no more. If you come to Gautu, which is a village uh, sort of northeast of Plassey. I will march from Plassey to meet you, but if you won't comply even with this, pardon me, I shall make it up with the Nobob, all right? Now, you tell me, what is truth? And, and what, what is reality? What is myth? What is fact? What is fiction? And why would the British East India Company faithfully maintain such records? And why wouldn't historians or writers Or or analysts, or observers, or nationalists, historians of every color and ethnicity and religion, neglect to look at records such as this, which are made available to a simple person like me. I'm not an Oxford historian. I'm I'm a lover of history who has a discipline in journalism and research up for history. Who also has? I'm a storyteller, and I'm deeply rooted in my work. This book is is. It's history, it is not fiction. Every bit of it is research. And what sources am I referring to? Recorded sources, not made up sources. Documented, clinically documented sources. So, you know, you have, to, you have to reach out, you have to reach out in the right way. And these are available to me, like they're available to people who have far more resources than I do. Way, way more resources than I do. If I, why aren't other people doing it? That's the question I would like to ask. History telling. And I'm so happy, Omar, that in the subcontinent, in, in India, in Bangladesh, elsewhere, I think we, we know this need, this absolutely crime for making up history. And there are many, many fine people women, men, boys, girls, students, practitioners, teachers researchers, writers, historians, political scientists, ethnographers, anthropologists, you name it, who are interrogating history in many, many ways and are claiming their own histories by asking hard questions, simple questions, and trying to
0: get at what really happened that is so good for history. Well, a question while you were talking about the right narrative. Um... Is how does anyone who is not an avid reader of history or a student of the discipline, you know, judge between what is right and what is wrong, or rather, you know, what is true or false, uh, what is real or fabricated? How does one make a conscious decision of selectively reading objectively true history? Well, that is a very good question. I
1: mean, I would separate it down here. I would put my research hat on, and my journalism hat on, and my historian hat on as well, and combine all the things and say that, you know, what I'm offering you in our conversation is not opinion, it's an observation based on what I've seen and heard and read. Now, a reader, and that is also one of the key issues about, you see, you can tell, people are not, uh, they're not stupid. I mean, people are not stupid. People often end up uh, uh, believing in what they want to believe in because it suits them. But I can assure you that there are people who will read a certain history and gauge for themselves as, as being opinion. For instance, there are historians. I mean, I, there are many Bengali historians of the and of writers and great intellectuals and great emancipators uh, of of Bengal, for instance, who um, who. Uh, whitewashed this whole battle of Placid and made it off again, Oh, thank God that the British have come and they have got rid of the Yavanas, the Muslim rulers who dominated us for so many centuries, from the third, 12th and 13th centuries onwards, destroyed Bengal culture and whatever, without realizing that the the, uh, the Hindu culture, without realizing, ironically, you had the Hindu kings in Bengal, uh, who also destroyed the Buddhist uh, of Buddhist kings who of uh, Bengal as well. <laughs> you know, he said, well, these grand denunciations that were made uh, these sort of these big bad Yavanas and these, Ramas, uh, these Nawabs and they terrible people, and thank heaven the British are with us. And then, you know, people like Isha Chandra Rudhyasar, for instance, one of the greatest intellectuals of Renaissance Bengal one of the greatest emancipated Bengal, the, the person who fought for abolition, who fought for widow remarriage. I mean, imagine the things he did for uh, civilization, if you will. He parroted the same theory about because, uh, uh, because he was part of the Bengal Renaissance, which came out of the funding and the facilitation of the East India Company. <laughs> Let's not forget that the Bengal Renaissance a direct benefit. Uh, root of the, I mean, the Bengalis are probably going to take out a contract on me, but I said it in my book, the Bengalis. In any case, but you know, so which is also very deeply rooted in history. So we have to interrogate these, uh, and uh, so we, have, you know, we have to look, we have to look deeper uh, in these these very aspects. So uh, we have to question why Bangladesh sees it so importantly. Uh, it's important to whitewash. Or, or greenwashed Siraj into this valorous individual who was, became a martyr. And be, be in Bangladesh, he's portrayed as a, as a last Bengali Nawab, which is all wrong. In fact, the Bangladesh government actually funded a project called Nawab Siraj Uddola, where Shiraj is portrayed in this black gown in the black turban with the you know, five the star of Islam on the turban. And he is, and you see the movie, it's available on YouTube. Uh, you can you can see it for yourself, or your, your viewers or readers or listeners can. I urge you to do that. Uh, just go, you know, go to YouTube and say Nawab Sirajuddaula Bangladesh, and you'll get that movie. And the opening sequence is Nawab Siraj, uh, uh, you know, holding the uh, in a very Bollywood fashion, holding the whip that this uh, this uh, uh, bad company man is using to whip this poor Bengali. Chap. And of course, the company man is played by uh, a, 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 a Bangladeshi actor, and he speaks in this ridiculous English thing, chiplow, and ham. Uh, you know that kind of stuff. And then Shyamji Dola grabs the whip, and he turns the whip on this big bad company guy, rescues the the peasants and the farmers who have been tortured, and gallops across the paddy fields of Bengal. And for heaven's sake, Shyamji never did that. It is a mythical representation for the need of a history a historiography that Bangladesh needed at that particular point to rewrite his own history, uh, as if, because Bangladesh had an issue with subcontinental history because for them, uh, history didn't begin in 1947, in some ways that began with the nationalists of India and Pakistan. For Bangladesh, the history began in 1971. When the they, they formally broke away from West Pakistan, from Pakistan, so people write history, they project history, they project events and people sometimes with ulterior motives. That becomes a very dangerous thing, you see, and that is a big, big problem. And we have to continually interrogate these uh, these aspects. In fact, that that movie is part of my uh, my book. Uh, there's no absolute I urge you and your listeners, viewers and and readers to to, to watch it for themselves. Uh, you know, what what can I say?
0: So when you were talking about the interconnectedness of history, I recalled how nothing occurs in a vacuum and like everything in history is relative to something or the other. So tell us a bit about how the global events are shaping the drama that's unfolding in Bengal. For example, the British and French rivalry and the seven years of war and so on. Well it's, it's it's very simple because um, or not
1: that simple but you, I mean it's it's simple when you, you break it up, break it down into if you see classy or if you see any battle or the subsequent development in India or Mr continent, as a geopolitical, geoeconomic exercise which is married to the to the exercise of enterprise. Like one of the other myths that are presented, and I'm deliberately mentioning this here, is that uh, British historians will often say that, oh, big bad, big bad bad company. You know, the government had nothing to do with it. It was a company enterprise which went ahead and raped and looted and drained the wealth of India. Uh, We had nothing to do with it. We did all we could for India. It's absolute bunkum because, uh, you know, the. The British East India Company loaned money to the British government. The British government stood in as guarantor for the company all over the world. Uh, when uh Rai, who was an employee of the East India Company and commander of the land forces, came up from Madras to Calcutta, he traveled on ships, which were company ships and ships of His Majesty's Navy and Admiral Charles Watson who led that fleet into Calcutta, was an officer, an admiral of His Majesty's government. Before the left, they actually even concluded a treaty between themselves and agreed on how to share the loot, wars of war. So the, the, it was a venture all along between company and crown, and it's true of the French East Indies Company and the French government. The Dutch East India Company, Dutch government. The Danish government, the the Danish government. You see? Uh, So it's always got hand in hand, like today. Business and politics go hand in hand. So, when, so here you have a situation where over and above business, uh, you had, you had the, you know, the European, uh, the Austrian war of succession breaking out in 1740. Then you had the 10-year war, uh, or the 7-year war, breaking out in the 1750s, uh, in which England and um, Britain were on opposing sides, like in the, the, uh, the war of Austria and which actually led to a lot of the tension in southern India at that point of time between the British and the French. So let's not forget that the French fleeed into, uh, into Madras, the trees of Madras, and took over and actually conquered Fort St. George as a direct uh, offshoot, as a direct corollary, as an extension of the European War of Succession. And then the treaty-making that happened in Europe also led to uh, Fort St. George being handed back to the British after a while. And then when the British in turn took over Pondicherry, which was a French company headquarters in India at that point of time, that also happened on account of a treaty that was uh, that took place in Europe, in which uh, Britain and France were signed the treaty, and they were back, they were fighting in Canada at that point in time. Britain and France They were fighting in North America. They were plundering each other's shipping that were coming in with slaves from Africa and sugar uh, and other produce from the Caribbean. They were they were fighting each other in East Asia, and the Dutch were also part of that fight. The Dutch were fighting the British, the British were fighting the Dutch. The French were trying to keep each other at bay, trying to get their edge in. The Portuguese were a done deal by then. In any case, their age of empire had almost vanished because of the, uh, the, 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 the ascendancy of the British, the French, and the Dutch. The Danish were pockets of enterprise. So this was a reality. And the Germ- and Germany was also trying to slowly get into the act at that particular point of time. Uh, without... Terribly too much success. So this is the global reality over at particular point part of time. So a lot of the uh, activity that happened in, in the Indian subcontinent and the Carnatic Wars, for instance, where Britain and France, uh, Britain and and France were on opposing sides, um, or more correctly, their company forces and their government forces joint ventures were on opposing sides with each others uh, against each other's companies and, and countries. The same thing played out in India, uh, play, played out in Bengal, and played out in Prasi as well. Uh, in fact, Siraj Atala reached out to Pondicherry, the French in Pondicherry, to try and help them. The British were reaching out to the Maratha, uh, the Peshwa Baji Rao, the second, uh, trying to get his help into trying to defeat Siraj, the old uh, Bengal enemies. Siraj was trying to uh, trying to see if he could reach out to the Mughals. Brazil is in the Mughal court in order to keep the Marathas at bay and trying to work with the French, trying to keep the British at bay. I mean, so everyone was trying to, uh, uh, you know, trying to control each other's and protect each other's spheres of influence for political control and economic control because trade was a very, very big thing at that point of time. Uh, and in, in the background, you had this European uh, aspect playing out. You had this sort of global aspect playing out. I mean, it is absolutely geoeconomic, Uma, like today. It was happening in the middle of the 18th century. The beginning of the 18th century, middle of the 18th century, the end of the 18th century, it continues to this day. So, we have to understand these dynamics.
0: You know, like most important events of history, you mentioned that even the story of Blassey has been through multiple retellings. Uh, and so, my question is, like, how has the narrative changed over the period of time, and how does your book challenge the status quo? Like, how does one look back for the right and objective narrative?
1: Well, the thing is that, I mean, there are you know, works of history, which are pure history, there are works of pure history, which sometimes is described as popular history, which is a term that I, is usually a term given by academicians who... Such books, not by those who write them, I can assure you. <laughs> I mean, we work. Uh, uh, I mean, we're also students of history. We are practitioners of history. You know, maybe I don't have a PhD in history, but I can assure you that I, I put in a lot of rigor into my research and and, and writing. Uh, but uh, I'm being too here, only partly. But I think there are there are many people who are doing it. There is no. Uh, I, I, I think it's a personal thing that when you, as a student of history, as a reader of history, as a reader of politics, a reader of, of current affairs of the world at large, when something triggers you and you go back and say, hey, you know, we haven't heard about that. What, why, why haven't we heard about that? And why are these histories always so unidimensional, whether it's a colonial history or whether it's a Mughal history or whether it's Indian nationalist history or a post-independence nationalist narrative, or the so-called Marxist history. You know, these are all kinds of uh, aspects that we, you know, which are, need to be considered, and then I guess it, it's up to one or the other researcher or writer or narrator to tell the story from his or her perspective, whether it's an absolutely academic ent- uh, publication which is uh, approached as a thesis or is approached as an academic publication and is presented as such, or it is uh, something like the book that I've written, Classy, which has been read by historians as well as uh, lovers of history and students of history and uh, people who are passionate about history and different people have different opinions about it, but people haven't questioned my premise. They haven't questioned my sources. Nobody's questioned the accuracies, you see. So... Uh, the point is, and I mean, I'll come up with other names, like, for instance, you know, where there's this there's gentleman called Srinivas Reddy, who's written a book on Krishnadeva Raya. And I think that's a fine effort, which, are, which is applauded by uh, readers, uh, students of history, lovers of history, as well as historians, because uh, Mr. Reddy has gone and uh, approached Krishna Raya as a flesh and blood individual, and has to peel over the layers, contextualize them in the time and place, so on and so forth. Uh, there are people who are writing histories about uh, Mohandas Gandhi, there are people who are writing histories about Balabhai Patel, there are people who are writing histories about uh, the RSS, there are people who are writing history about uh, the, in the, the Bengal famine, or how or Indian participation in the, the first, in the, in the world wars and how it has not been addressed enough. People are writing in movements, uh the Muslims in modern India decline, if you will, uh, of the the the, mm. uh, the 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 collective education which many emancipators and leaders of the Islamic community in the Indian subcontinent probably uh fought, you know sort of battled for the same way that other people fought for the glory of England, you see. So, there are people who are now trying to retell histories, who are trying to interrogate the past as it has been handed down to us, and are trying to tell it in a more in a research fashion, in trying to tell it whether it's ancient history or medieval history or modern history, or histories of people, of places, of battles, not blind histories, but histories with open eyes, histories with open minds, with open hearts, not opinion history, but history. I think there's a lot of history taking place uh, in the subcontinent. And and that's, I think, it's an extremely good thing. And it's not surprising that in in a time of uh, is being suppressed, when history writing interrogative sense is being suppressed, when propaganda is replacing history, when propaganda is replacing everything, when when, when, when that is today's reality, it is absolutely crucial, it is absolutely imperative that such interrogative histories are done, and I'm very happy that it's happening more and more, more power for all of us. I would
0: say that. So, before we conclude, what lessons do you think one can seek to learn from the Battle of Plassey? Like, how is an 18th century battle relevant to us in our times? And what should our listeners seek from your book on the narratives in particular?
1: Because it's, it's it's in the interconnectedness of things, right? I mean, I, I said it as a joke a little earlier, but I meant it as in utmost seriousness. Um, we called ourselves an anglophile nation. You know, uh, our currency notes in India. And I'm saying our in India. And I mean, Pakistan as well. Where it may be Urdu in Pakistan, but there's English as well on that currency note. Uh, there is in India, there is Nagri script which says 100 rupees, but it also says 100 rupees. In Bangladesh, it says 80 taka, but on the obverse it will say 100 taka. In Nepal, uh, it will say in the Nepali rupee, but they will be it uh, will be in, in English. In Sri Lanka, apon money. Uh, there is uh, in, in 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 Tamil, in in Sinhala, and in English. On you know so th- that alone should tell where we've come from. And aren't you curious as to why you are the way you are, why we are the way we are, why our histories are driven in a particular way? Um, the you have the the Ukrainian in northern India, as we speak, but what is the root cause of that? Uh, things that happened in the Green Revolution, time of the Green Revolution, is it? or is it the time that when the British uh, created land laws in the Punjab, and uh, which, which uh, affected um, the Punjabi farmer, uh, or the, Punjab, uh, the farmer in the Doab, in then United Punjab, if you will, and Haryana, Punjab, not Punjab, as the British said, but Punjab as it ought to be said, uh, you know, P-A-N-J-A-B is, to my mind, the right way to spell it, even in English. Uh, P-U-N-J-A-B. Uh, so, when you, when in the Punjab, uh, you, to, how you take it back. Then, where is the root of that? The Crown government taking over 1857, how did that happen? Baksha, how did that happen? Classy. Don't you want to know? When people say, Oh, Plassey, Sirajit Robert, uh, Robert, don't you want to know that you know, when these people say Siraj was a martyr, aren't you interested in finding out who is this chap, Siraj, what was he? How did he come to be in this particular place? What was happening in that particular point of time? How are we the way we are? Why is India divided? Why is the subcontinent divided? How do we have our issues? How do we have our railways? How do we have our trade? How do we have our Anglophile natures? What were the French doing here? What were the Portuguese doing? Shaista Khidna. What was Shaista Khan all about? You know, that's how the phrase comes used for In Bengal, that's what the root is, because he fought with the British. You know, don't you want to? i curious as to your own histories, or are we so consumed WhatsApp University? Are we so consumed with Twitter, WhatsApp, Instagram forwards, and our sort of a family a WhatsApp groups with our uncles and aunties, that we've completely forgotten the need, you we've know, completely ignored the need of where truth lies, or where history lies, where are the roots of the histories lies? aren't we interested at all, don't we damn, or are we going to be following blind history and get stuck more and more into this morass of history, into the mythical history that we're being fed, day and night, literally 12 or 7, through digital uh, enterprise, through television enterprise, through absolutely undependable and alienated sources, not research sources, is that what we're going to be doing? Following blind, a future based on a blind, based on a blinded past? Is that what we're going to be living on? I don't
0: think so. I hope not, because if that is what we're doing, we're doomed. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Chakravarti, for this beautiful conversation. It was an absolute delight to have you on as our first guest on our podcast. Um, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy your book as much as I did and learn from the many hidden plots and subplots of the book. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to today's episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. This brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you liked it, please consider subscribing to us on any platform you're listening to us from and share it with your family and friends. Your support means a lot for us. Don't forget to check out our website, www.indiacolonized.com, that's colonized with an S, where we have more such interesting articles, blogs, and write-ups just for you. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or any other social media platform to stay tuned with us about latest updates about our episodes and write-ups. So until next time, stay safe, stay curious.